On this week's episode of Cinema 60, Bart and Jenna play Kiss, Mary Kill with the films of 1960. And welcome to Cinema 60. I'm Bart. I'm Jenna. And this week we're talking about movies from 1960. So it's not a uh, specific theme. I'm not sure by the end of this we will uh, be able to come up with any theories that really characterize this particular year. But it's a, I feel like it's a way to focus in on you know, seeing a, the variety of movies that, uh, that were coming out all at the same time. And uh, I have a an obsession with chronology, I guess. So it, I don't know, there's just something uh, deep within me that, that gets some satisfaction knowing, oh, this movie came out the same year as this movie. So I have an obsession with your obsession with chronology because that was my favorite part of your video store was when you had a wall of just like, these are movies that all came out in the same year. And it was fascinating. I have multiple photos on my phone from over the years of just taking photos of that wall and being like, I want to watch this, this, and this, and that, and that. And just seeing that, you know, these, it, it really is very interesting to see the variety of things that were coming out. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, there's something about just looking at movies in, in the by year that is just also fascinating to me. And I think that for our episode here, You'll see also a pretty good mix of um, choices that we have for, uh, you know, seeing what exactly the year 1960 was like in film. Yeah, I also think that it helps you to narrow things down and, and find things that you might not otherwise seek out. I don't know if there's anything too obscure that we're doing in this episode, but uh, I, I always, you know, I always like to find those those hidden gems or those little talked about movies. And when you're focusing on a, on a given year, you can sort of dig deep and, and see, uh, oh, this, this movie was uh, popular, but we don't talk about it anymore. Or, this movie is so discussed now, I can't believe that nobody went to see it. Like The, the Magnificent Seven, for example, I assume that would be one of the top movies of 1960, but it, it actually didn't, uh, you know, made two and a half million dollars. It was not one of the top grocers, and it sort of just uh, more, more fondly remembered than a lot of these other movies that were top box office hits at the time. I just want to run down what was hot in America in 1960. Number one, uh, Spartacus. Number two, Psycho. Number three, Exodus, the Preminger film about the, the founding of Israel. Number four is Disney's Swiss Family Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Number five was The Alamo, John Wayne's uh, the only time he directed a movie, he also stars as Davy Crockett. Uh, number six is The Apartment, Billy Wilder. That's only number six? Yeah. I mean, still made you know, many millions of dollars, but you know, if, if you're in the top ten, you're, you're, you're doing pretty well, I guess. I wish, I, I wish I'd written down the dollar figures, but I, I guess we'd have to convert it into modern dollars to, to understand just how big these movies were. Number seven was Butterfield 8. The uh, Elizabeth Taylor movie where she plays a high-class slut. <laughs> Number eight is uh, Ocean's Eleven, the original, the, the Rat Pack version. Number nine is Please Don't Eat the Daisies, a Doris Day, David Niven movie about a city family that moves to the country. And number ten, From the Terrace uh, with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. 
So, yeah, a few of those don't really get discussed at all anymore. Yeah, like eating the daisies. Yeah, please please don't eat the daisies is, is all but forgotten. In other countries, there are some pretty important things going on. In France, the, uh, the, the French New Wave was going strong. Breathless came out that year. Uh, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player... Chevrolet's Les Bonnes Femmes, which is one of my favorites of his. Uh, Zazie dans le Metro, Purple Noon, Eyes Without a Face, Le True. Italy had some big ones. Uh, La Dolce Vita, uh, La Ventura. Oh, yeah. Black Sunday, the Mario Bava horror. Really pushed some, some boundaries of what you could show in horror movies. Adjua and Her Friends, which is a Pietrangeli movie that uh, that's not very well known, but uh, is one of my favorite Italian movies. Uh, two women in uh, in Britain. We've got Peeping Tom, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, The Entertainer, Tunes of Glory. In Japan, we've got Kurosawa's Bad Sleep Well, When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, the Narus movie, Ozu's Late Autumn, uh, the Warped Ones, which we discussed on our first episode. And uh, some of the other significant American movies were Elmer Gantry, Home from the Hill. It's a Vincent Minnelli movie with uh, Robert Mitchum I, I really like. Elvis had some movies. Did you make a list of some things from 1960 that, that mean something to you? Well, actually, I mean, you pretty much listed them. You know, I love The Apartment, La Dolce Vita, Peeping Tom is great, Breathless, La Ventura. Gosh, what I mean, like it, it, it's it, this was a good year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find that no matter no matter how terrible a year seems, there are always a bunch. I I mean, we you know we talk about the the good old days, but there there are just as many terrible movies in 1960 as there are now. We just tend to remember the best ones, I guess, and I think that's probably true for every year. But there definitely were some some really good ones in 1960. So um, initially we were just going to pick a few of our favorites and talk about them, but uh, we, we uh, independently, Jenna and I, uh, had this idea where, uh, you know, what fun is just talking about great movies. Let's talk about some favorites, let's talk about some movies we hate also, and then let's, uh, let's take some chances with some movies we don't know anything about. So we, we sort of used the popular social media game uh, FMK as, as our model. <laughs> Which, uh, for, for those who don't know, it stands for a fuck, Mary kill, where you have a list of three, usually celebrities, and you decide uh, which, which one falls into which category. Or we were going to call it uh, shag, Mary kill, in keeping with the whole 60s thing, but it just seems a little too Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, I guess, you know, why not? It's, Austin Powers is, is about fetishizing the 60s, which is exactly what we're doing, so... <laughs> and I think, you know, because it's, it, it, it's hard to uh, characterize a year, really, based on, uh, on, on six movies, I think uh, maybe, maybe we should just sort of talk about how we personally approach these movies and our personal responses to these things and, and how, we, how we decided on, on, on our selections and that sort of thing. So we didn't want to choose the most obvious, obvious things that have been discussed over and over again, which isn't to say we don't love them, and we'll probably discuss them at some point, but... We tried to go for, at least for the loves, the good, uh, we tried to go for something that we genuinely love, but um, maybe is a little uh, lesser uh, talked about in comparison to, you know, I, you know La Dolce Vita. <laughs> right. I think really interestingly, 
of all of the movies that we chose, we each chose three. Um, we chose an exact split of three black and white and three color movies, which actually seems like, you know, pretty representative of 1960. Yeah. So I, I was pretty happy about that when I realized that. And we also did three American and three foreign, right? Ooh. Did we? Let's see. If the Australian movie that we picked counts as a, uh, I mean, it was a, it was a U.S. Australian production, so I think that kind of counts as an American movie. Yeah. No, that's that was pretty American. Anyhow. Why don't we jump right in? Why don't you talk about what you selected as your, uh, as your favorite, as a favorite from 1960, and why you chose it? Yeah. So I, so I chose for my love. Uh, Rocco and His Brothers by Lucino Visconti. Rocco e i suoi fratelli. I chose this actually because this was my first foray into Visconti as a director and it had a, a pretty big impact on me when I first saw it. Uh, number one, this was, I watched this in college when I was going through my phase of obsessively renting movies and kind of really like, you know, allowing myself to, to lose myself <laughs> and, and spend all of my time watching movies and thinking about movies. So. Yeah, I mean, this and, and at the time, this was absolutely one of the most beautiful movies I had ever seen. And I'm not just talking about Alain Delon's face, <laughs> <laughs> except I'm also 1000% talking about Alain Delon's face because, hot damn, that guy is even cuter when he has like a little band-aid placed <laughs> just perfectly above his eye. He is like an anime Bishonen leading man, but he's real. But he's unreal, and he was beautiful. He's awfully photogenic. Oh, my God. Probably the most beautiful man. Just full stop. Anyhow, it made me go search for other Visconti films. (laughs) (laughs) He shows up in a few of Visconti, or at least he's in The Leopard anyway, as is Claudia Cardinale, another, another photogenic face from this movie. Oh, God. They are so beautiful. I I mean, he replaced the band-aid with an eye patch and it only got better. (laughs) But yeah, no, this made me look for the other Visconti films and and those are all, you know, goldmine of interesting, beautiful cinema. So yeah, so I figured let's talk about Rocco. Also, I haven't rewatched it for ages. So, so I'll give you a brief plot summary. This is the story of a Southern Italian family who immigrates up to Milan uh, which was at the time an industrial center, uh, especially in comparison to the rural South. And the film itself is structured in five sections for each uh, brother. There's Vincenzo, Simone, Rocco, Ciro, and Luca Parondi. And uh, the main storyline is sort of weaved in and out through each of these um, chapters. And that main storyline is about Rocco and Simone primarily. Uh, and Simone is a boxer, and he's, like, crude and brazen, and Rocco is more sensitive and shy. And he could have been a boxer, but he, number one, is not, he's not aggressive enough, and he just doesn't, also doesn't want to compete with his brother. 
And so there's a woman named Nadia who's uh, played by uh, Annie Giraudot, who's in all of this, and she's a she's a prostitute who gets uh, she mistakenly ends up in the Perondi household, and she sort of bewitches uh, Simone. Uh, he's super into her, and and he courts her steadily, and she's pretty happy for the attention. But when he starts to get um, jealous and possessive, she draws a line in the sand and tells him, this is like, this is just for fun. Like, we're not getting married. I don't know what you're expecting. And so she ends up dumping him, which makes him very upset. (laughs) And then we jump forward in time a little bit, and Rocco has uh, joined the army, and he ends up running into Nadia in Torino as she's gotten out of jail for prostitution. So they're both in a different city. They meet up, and they start to have this sort of whirlwind romance with each other, and uh, the feeling's mutual, but Rocco knows that her history with Simone, and he keeps the relationship a secret from his family. But when uh, Simone finds out, he gathers up all of his friends and they corner the couple and he beats the crap out of his own brother and then he rapes Nadia and in front of everyone. And Rocco, in turn, relinquishes his relationship with Nadia because he says he doesn't realize how much the relationship hurt his brother and he wants his brother to be happy. He's a, a real martyr here. <laughs> yeah, saintly Rocco. Yeah, and, and so he also tells Nadia, or he asks her to get back with Simone, which is creepy in the movie, but it's also, like, literally outrageous by 2018 standards. <laughs> Not that that doesn't, unfortunately, still happen in the world, but... Um, this movie's epic. It's three hours long. But it flies by. I mean, there's so much absorbing melodrama in it that it really doesn't feel its length at all, I don't think. Whereas, you know, La Dolce Vita was, was about the same length. And, you know, as much as I love that movie, it, it takes some effort to get through it. Yeah, I was, I was happy, you know, to see that this held up for me. Though there was a lot that I noticed this time around that I didn't really notice the first time that I was probably too distracted by. <laughs> <laughs> by Rocco. But um <laughs> like you know there's definitely uh yeah I mean that that this theme that 3 out of 5 brothers do well if not flourish and the other two they sink and and wallow for different reasons entirely. It was definitely interesting. I I I thought that you know there's definitely a, a message here about opportunity and about, you know, obviously them coming from this very rural area where the mother says was terrible. The brothers, uh, at least some of them, are, are nostalgic for this previous time, but there there really was nothing for them to be nostalgic for. It was full of corrupt landowners and, and people essentially pressing everyone, uh, you know, into slavery on farms. And, it, you know, there was a reason why they moved besides the fact that the, the father died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it was sort of interesting, though, to see that, you know, that certain people will flourish when, when their world is, is broadened and others completely lose their way. And to see that some brothers, you know, once they're in this, this land of opportunity now, even with being called dirty immigrants, which was kind of interesting uh, by the Northerners, they managed to, to pick up slack and run with it. Whereas someone like Simone, the, there's so many options and so much promise and so much opportunity that he just completely self-destructs. So that was kind of an interesting um, human observational point, which I think is something that Visconti does a lot. You know, he, he has these maybe larger, loftier points, but what I really like about him is how he analyzes just people on a very one-on-one level. 
Yeah, I I went into it assuming that there would be some some really larger statement about country folk moving to the city and and uh, you know and what happens. But really, it's a story of these individuals. It's about characters. I mean, that's that's definitely in the background of everything. But it's, I mean, I, I'm not sure Visconti has too much to say other than than just that. Some people will flourish and others won't. And I mean, I think Rocco is, you know, in some sense, the most successful of all of them because he becomes a, a famous boxer. He he wins matches and makes a lot of money and gets his picture on the on the on the front page of the paper. And and uh, but he's he's miserable because his his family that you know his his all important family. The only thing he really cares about, uh, you know, is keeping his family together and and making sure they're all successful as a whole. The the uh, you know he he's he's failed on that front, so he sees himself as a as a failure, um, and that you know I I think that there's probably an, an old world sensibility or you know a, a a rural sensibility to that where family comes before everything else. You have to you know your family has to be self sufficient and and provide for itself or uh, you, you know because that's that's in the end that's all you've got. You know as much as Rocco loves Nadia, he throws her to the wolves for, you know, for the sake of family. He thinks he's doing to the, the right thing by giving her up, but really he's just even more horrifying than Simone's rape of Nadia is, you know, that, that scene on the top of the cathedral where Rocco says, no, you have to go back to Simone, to, to Nadia. I mean, that's, that's the most crushing moment in the movie. Right. So Nadia, for sure, is a, an amazing character in this movie. She, she by far is, you know, where Rocco comes across as almost a, a, this like <laughs> a religious robot in a lot of ways that he's this like martyr, you know, for everything to, to the point of, as you said so well, that it, it's terrifying, actually, that he makes these decisions that are just, they're, you know, morally the correct decision in as far as him doing well by his brother. But then, you know, the, re- the reality of these are, are so far removed from what he thinks they mean. And Nadia is, I think, really the, funny enough, the, the actual Christ-like figure and the actual martyr of this entire movie. Oh, and yeah. even when uh, she dies, I, I, I noticed this time around, the final scene of her, she's standing with her back to a pole, and she throws her arms out like Jesus on the cross and says, like, yeah. like come at me or something like that. You know, she's because Simone is uh, advancing towards her, and she says, just fine, like, just take me, whatever. Do, do whatever you're going to do anyhow. And then he stabs her and kills her in that position. And for, you know, a prostitute, it was, I found it kind of interesting for an Italian, I mean, Visconti was definitely not, uh, he was a subversive in many ways. So I I thought that was like a really interesting choice to have made and so overtly Uh, and to have Rocco be not, not really the good guy in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, for a movie called Rocco and his brothers, really Nadia is the well, anyway, she's the most interesting character in the movie, but she's also right. kind of the the heart of the movie, and it's and it's all as abused as she is. She's the one that you really that your heart goes out to the the whole time. I mean, she's Rocco is not even a, a particularly interesting character. Simone is is pretty fascinating, but he's he's so awful. He's such a beast. You know, you want him to get his act together, but at the same time, he's just you want the the cops to to drag him away for sure. 
by the time that Rocco sacrifices Nadia for him, you you're saying, you know, Simone is a lost cause, Rocco. What? Why are you bothering? But, right. So yeah, I, it's it's Nadia's movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she's she's absolutely amazing. She she's such a and she's so real, especially in comparison to Rocco, who just he doesn't. He comes across as real in the sense that number one, I actually think that Delon does an, an excellent job acting in this movie, which I can't always yeah. say for all of his movies, <laughs> but he is really, uh, you know, especially for a movie where I watch this in Italian and he's dubbed in Italian. It's not even him speaking. Um, you can watch this in French, actually, which I think has his real voice in it. But for an actor who doesn't even get to use his real voice, the way that he emotes in this movie, I completely buy him as a real person. I, you know, even though all of the decisions he makes end up being just like, he's such a martyr that it's almost, it's, it is unrealistic. The characters are designed to fade into the background. He, Rocco doesn't want any success for himself. He just wants to sort of hang back and do whatever is best for the family. So I think... I think Alan Delon is really good at playing that. Maybe because he's so beautiful, he's just your your eyes are drawn to him, but he doesn't have to do much. He just has to be in the scene watching what's happening and you and you sort of feel like you're getting inside the character's head a little bit. Yeah, and I you know, I think also with with Nadia, she also serves to I think make some of the larger points of this movie which I think have a lot to do with BS masculinity number one <laughs> mm-hmm. uh and also that you know the sort of taking apart of family ties and, and the importance of family ties she definitely shows how women are treated as objects and and not human beings and and even Rocco who who is meant to be so in love with her when he hears of her death he's sitting there weeping but he's also he only views her as a symbol this is now a, you know, this will implicate my brother now that she's dead. Uh, you know, oh, I had my time with her. <laughs> he, he doesn't seem that broken up for her as a human being. It just seems like a, he views her as a, a, a sense of loss that now has to change things or make life more difficult for him. Mm-hmm. But she's, it, but there's no way for, for, I think, the audience to view her and have that same opinion. Yeah. There, you know, so one of the other things I, I didn't, noticed the first time around that I noticed this time around was that there was like what I thought was a a gay subplot. Did you catch that? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Simone's relationship with the the boxing promoter is really kind of vague and sinister and and it's coded pretty gay. There's nothing very explicit about it, but is that what you're referring to? Yeah, but it actually is sort of it's not explicit, but it also, I think if you know what you're looking for, it is because he first meets him when they're literally in the shower and this guy mm-hmm. walks in and he looks at them silently up and down in the shower, Right. <laughs> which is one of those things where uh, I think the first time I watched this, I was like, well, I guess that's sports. You know, <laughs> like, it didn't, I, like I thought it was, you know, I maybe also was, you know, just gazing at Delon in the shower myself but um you know the he sort of he has this weird moment and and, and after seeing him naked he says he's going to hire him and then later on when Simone is a drunk and he has no money and now he's terribly in debt he goes back to the boxing promoter and he says I need money he says well you don't box and there's implied that there are other ways that he can like like there are favors that he can do for the promoter in order to receive more money and it is like so 
subtle but overt. And I wonder, because I, I, I can't imagine that if it had been more overt that they would have allowed this to happen in some ways because there's no, like Simone, he's like a bad guy, but he's not, I don't know. Usually when, when people are, are gay in these movies, they're like really bad. <laughs> the, the boxing promoter is, he's a real sleazeball. I mean, he is sort of the, the typical sinister gay character in these movies. Right. You know, Visconti was a was out of the closet. He's uh, acknowledged as a uh, as a gay filmmaker, especially when he got around to, you know, The Damned and Death in Venice. Was, there, there were themes that he uh, he definitely dwelled on later in his career, but uh, you know, even even early on there, you know, he's he's dealing with some of these issues. Uh, another thing that I I really uh, you know, loved and, and noticed this time around is just I mean, it's just besides I mean, there's the Nino Rota score is great. Mm-hmm. And then um, the camera, the, there's some just gorgeous shots in here. Never mind the settings are gorgeous. The scene on top of uh, the chapel in Milan is is fantastic uh, setting, you know, with them speaking about uh, adultery and, you know, around all these angels and, and uh, images, which is even uh, gets called out by Nadia in a scene after that. But um, the scene, the boxing scenes are beautiful. There's this, there's a couple of them where, where you have like the foreground in shadow and then the, the ring is lit up and then everything behind it is sort of blends all together. It's just like the way that he plays with light and shadow in this movie is it, it, you almost don't even notice it's in black and white. You know, I, I actually was surprised that it wasn't a more self-consciously beautiful movie there's something, it doesn't, I mean, a lot of the beauty of the shots don't really call attention to themselves. Like, there's not a lot of fancy camera work. You know, it's sort of, it's shot in a realistic style, but Visconti is always just filling the frame with people and stuff and these, and these people's homes when, you know, when they first go into Vincenzo's fiance's family's house and there's just so many people and so much stuff on the wall and it really just is, you know, just this, this apartment is, is just littered with stuff and it's really just... And, and and that sort of repeats throughout the movie. You just go into these rooms and where there there's just you know you really get a feel for the the these people and their life and and uh, you know I got more excited about watching just all these all these people moving around in the frame at the same time than uh, anything all that exciting he was doing with the camera. Yeah, Visconti sort of went back and forth throughout his career. You know, he he'd go between you know more more opulent movies about uh, the aristocracy and and uh, you know go back to more neorealist subjects like Rocco and his brothers and uh, and and I think that Rocco and his brothers. I mean, it's sort of a neorealist melodrama. Maybe the emotions are so extreme in this movie. I mean, it goes to kind of operatic heights of emotion that it's. You can't really call it a realistic movie, even though it's really dealing with the harsh realities of this this country family that's moved to the big city. But it sort of falls in an interesting place there, I think, between his more formalist movies and his his neorealist stuff. That's a great point. Yeah, I think we've already talked about this movie way too long, but I also wanted to bring up that it reminded me of The Godfather this time through in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like Coppola must have been pretty inspired by this movie. And I think mainly in the whole, you know, family comes before everything idea. And uh, well, it's pretty Italian. You know, and, and, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think Michael Corleone, you know, the Al Pacino character is a is is a real Rocco figure. I mean, he's trying to do what's best for his family and just sort of and ends up corrupting himself almost accidentally. 
That's a good point. I don't know. It just, it, it, it felt sort of um, operatic in the same way. that. And Al Pacino was also beautiful, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you like all those Italian boys. Oh, I, I guess know, I guess so. Alan Delon is French. So. Close enough. So, what was your pick for your 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 good? So, as a as a favorite of 1960, I picked Strangers When We Meet, directed by Richard Quine and uh, starring Kirk Douglas and Kim Novak and Ernie Kovacs and Barbara Rush and Walter Matthau in a small but uh, but delightfully sleazy role. This is one of these movies where I, you know, I, I owned a video store, so I would, you know, just bring things home and, and kind of half watch them uh, while I was doing other work or watch the half watch them in the store. And, the, and this movie was one of those cases where I was, you know, filling out some tax forms or something while I, while I started this movie, and it just absolutely sucked me in. And, uh, you know, I had no expectations for it. I hadn't really heard a thing about this movie before I put it on. And, uh, I, you know, when it was over, I, I really felt like I'd seen this treasure that, that nobody talks about. And, you know, I was, there's part of me that suspected that maybe it's just because it was so much more interesting than, the, than whatever tax form I was trying to fill out. But uh, <laughs> I picked this movie because I was interested to see it again and, and give it my full attention, you know, just right from the beginning. And uh, You hadn't rewatched it? I hadn't rewatched it, no. And uh, yeah, it turns out that it's the masterpiece that I thought it was. Kirk Douglas is a successful architect who was happily married with, uh, with a couple of kids who runs into beautiful but depressed, neglected uh, housewife Kim Novak at the bus stop when he's dropping off his kids, and, uh, and they have an affair. I mean, there's really not a whole lot to the movie other than that, but it's dealt with in a, in a pretty realistic way. It, it doesn't get overly soapy and melodramatic or campy in, in the way that a, a Douglas Sirk film does, and I feel like that's the closest point of comparison. This movie feels a bit like a, like a Douglas Sirk movie without you know, maybe quite all the lushness or campiness. Yeah. You, you didn't care for it quite as much as I did. Yeah, so I'm really curious to see why you thought this was such a treasure, which isn't to say that I didn't like this. I actually really like this. It, it definitely, it has an honesty that you don't normally expect for, I guess, the type of movie that it looks like, <laughs> which sounds a little shallow, but, uh, you know, you expect maybe this is going to be some grand romance. You know, I'm looking at, like, the poster here. It says the heavens and hells of marital infidelity, but... It really isn't that. It's it's about um, two people who are unhappy. They just happen to find each other at the right time, and they happen to click. And it, it's just a right place, right time kind of affair, which I think is probably a lot truer of how affairs really happen than, than it would be that you were married and, and then met the love of your life afterward and were then happily uh, ever after married to that, that person after a brief mm -hmm. struggle. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, no, it's more that, you know, she's just lonely in a marriage where, you know, she's not getting the, you know, as you said, the physical attention that she, she wants. And he's just sort of uh, lost his inspiration. He's an architect. And uh, with his, the loss of his muse, he is now trying to find someone else to fill that void, which I think is something in general that people are, are mistakes, uh, which is what leads to divorce, is that people look to somebody else to bring happiness into their life or to scratch the, an itch of uh, accomplishment. When the reality is, is you have to, you know, this, all of this comes from within. The beauty comes from within and you have to make your own happiness at the end of the day. So yeah, it's, it, I, I like that this was adult enough to say that these are just two people who, despite being adults, are, are making childish decisions that are really more like a band-aid on the, the open wound of, of something much larger. I had a different read on Larry Coe, the, the Kirk Douglas character. He wasn't unhappy in his marriage. He's just, he's, a, he's an architect who, who's achieved this certain degree of success that he can sort of turn his back on all these million dollar offers that he's handed and, and just follow his passion and follow his dreams and design whatever house he wants to design and, and make it his own and, and just express himself exactly how he wants to express it and not have to answer to anybody. And along comes Kim Novak and she's beautiful and and sad and he decides to follow his passion there he just his marriage is not an unhappy one but he's just so used to the success that he's had through just chasing after whatever dream he has that he he sees nothing wrong really i mean he knows that he's betraying his wife and you know he has to keep it from her but he's you know he doesn't see this as any different than saying no to this you know designing this chain of hotels it doesn't excite him at all i mean he uses a minor argument with his wife as an excuse to jump into this relationship with maggie which is kim novak's character but i i think that the the, the real subtext to this movie is about following your passions and and whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing and i i think it the movie itself comes down on both sides of that. I mean, Kim Novak, on the other hand, Maggie, she jumps into this affair because she needs to. Her her husband is, and I think, again, we've got another character here who's not explicitly gay, but he's, I think it's it's pretty coded that way, that she's, you know, she's sort of living with the shame of a husband who's gay and, and won't give her any attention, or at least any physical attention, and... Uh, you know, she wants to jump into bed with Kirk Douglas, but uh, but she keeps changing her mind. She you know, she gets in the car with him to go look at this house that that they're in the process of building through the course of the the movie. You sort of, one, you know, one thing I I find interesting about this movie is just watching this house that uh, that Kirk Douglas has designed go from you know a, a bare lot to a, a completed house by the end of the movie. But she uh, she gets in the car with with Kirk Douglas uh, to go look at this this piece of property that he's going to design a house for. And, and um, she changes her mind and he does a U-turn and she said, bring me back. And, and then, um, you know, then he, he, he presses her some more and she says, oh, okay, we can go. And, and she keeps, you know, she doesn't want to, I, I think she feels like if she jumps into this relationship with him, she's sort of admitting the, the, the shame of her marriage. And uh, she also had, you know, there's the shame that her, her mother is a, is a character in the movie who's, who's sort of, had had an affair of her own, so she's always been kind of ashamed of her mother. That uh, you know that she, you know, she calls her mother a slut, and uh, you know, she did, doesn't want to fall into the same trap that her mother did. 
and Kirk Douglas is designing this house for uh, this best-selling author played by Ernie Kovacs. And there are a lot of discussions between the two of them about being, you know, an artist, about um, about a creative life and whether you should follow your gut and make the art that you have always wanted to make or, or, or think about the financial considerations. You know, Ernie Kovacs is, is disappointed in himself because he's written a couple of books that were bestsellers and, and made him a lot of money, but they, you know, he, he never wrote the, the book that he always wanted to write. And, and Kirk Douglas says, well, you know, you've got to follow your dreams like I have and write that book. And of course he does, and it becomes an even bigger bestseller and gets raves from all the critics. So I, I, I think that there are a bunch of really interesting subtexts in this movie. Well, I think that's part of what I didn't like about it, though, is that there's a there's a scene in the movie where um, Kim Novak calls out that writer as has having written false women in his book. She doesn't like his book, mm-hmm. and uh, she you know she thinks that he's shallow. And uh, I'm not too sure that this movie is any better. <laughs> like, why why is it that all these men get their these sort of lofty passions, and all Kim Novak gets is she's in one unhappy marriage and that all she does is continually cheat herself because she has that, that creepy uh, stalker who's calling her uh, because she slept with him once. And then, uh, you know, now she's moved on to Kirk Douglas. And what does she get in the end, too? He leaves her and she's still miserable. And I, I didn't really like how Kim Novak, in general, too, was treated as sort of interchangeably discardable. And but that said that that's that that women are treated that way is a very big point of this movie that there's three types of chauvinism that's on display. You have the writer who changes his girlfriends every week. Uh, you have the family man Kirk who um, you know he has a single mistress and he's taking things minute by minute. And then you have Mathau who has this really creepy scene and which is an excellent scene, basically as. Kirk Douglas is away with Kim Novak. Walter Matthau goes to Douglas's house and tries to uh, hit on Douglas's wife. And Kirk Douglas comes back right in time to see this and, of course, runs out and slugs him in the rain. And then Matthau says, you know, well, what's... he?" And, and rightfully, he says, well, what's the difference between you and me? Like, hey, I, it, was, it was worth a try kind of attitude, which um, is chauvinistic and obnoxious but it was i think an interesting commentary on cheating and that men will get righteous about uh that they can sleep with whoever but their wives can't that that sort of uh you know double standard was was an interesting point i thought yeah i don't know i i i wanted a little more from kim novak i just i didn't emotionally connect with anyone in this movie which i think was what was the only thing that's holding me back from calling it a a lost treasure, though it is very good. <laughs> it's 100% worth watching. Like, I, I very much liked it. I mean, maybe it is as simple as that. I just did have an emotional connection to it, and I can't even say why, because I don't particularly like any of the characters, but just, you know, it's got this, just, you know, that leaves me with this big pit in the in, in my stomach at the end. I mean, it's not... I think it, it was a fairly successful movie, but it's not... It's definitely not, uh, you know, it wasn't that well regarded at the time, and it's not remembered by many now. And I think because it's it's got a, a downbeat ending. Kim Novak is, um, I mean, she's not much of an actor. I thought she was good in this because all she really had to do was look sad the whole movie, <laughs> and she didn't have to emote too much. 
and she's got, you know, there's something about her. There's something you want to, you want to sympathize with her. There's something tragic about her looks, and I think that works really well for the character. But for soapy melodrama, it's really not. It's not a women's picture. Which is why I like Cirque. <laughs> I feel like he gets women a little better. So, um, so those were our favorites. I, I like Strangers When We Meet even more the second time around. I feel like maybe Rocco was uh, you, you uh, didn't have quite, quite as high an opinion of the second time through. I really like Rocco a lot, and I would call it a, a, a favorite and definitely a top Visconti still. But um, Rocco is a difficult character. I, there's, you know, funny enough, I also do not connect emotionally to most everyone in that movie except for Nadia. So it was, um, it was interesting to watch it again and really pay attention to these smaller details because I, I all at once got more out of the movie than I did the first time around and also uh, saw all of the flaws uh, a little more glaringly. Yeah, I think I, I felt the same way too. I, I, with Rocco, it's, um, I mean, I still really liked it, but it, it was... It boiled down to just a melodrama more than I expected. It wasn't the piece of art that I remembered it being. It was more just a really absorbing story. Agreed. So now it's time to move on to the movies that from 1960 that we've been wanting to see for a while, but are now using this episode as an opportunity to finally see them. Uh, what was it that you picked and why? So I chose The Sundowners which is a, a Fred Zinnemann-directed film. It has Robert Mitchum, Deborah Kerr, Peter Ustinov, and it is about an Irish-Australian roving farming family. <laughs> So I actually, I chose this not because I was so desperately burning to see it, but I was, I was curious to watch it for a couple of reasons. For one, um, I like Robert Mitchum and I like Deborah Kerr, so it seemed worthwhile for that alone. <laughs> uh, second, I, I love non-Western Westerns. And so an epic set in the Australian countryside sounded pretty promising, if not perhaps a little dull. <laughs> um, and then third, um, I thought this was an interesting pick maybe because this was nominated for five Academy Awards when it came out. Oh, really? So it's kind of inter- It didn't win any of them, I don't think. And it's kind of interesting to see in general I, what was considered great in its own time, even though obviously the Academy Awards are only going to offer a more mainstream choice of, of, of great. But um, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting since, since I presume what we would have picked for a favorite and for a hate are going to be movies that we've already actively sought out. So why not choose something that maybe I normally would not have sought out, but maybe will be a hidden treasure. Yeah, which which I'm not sure this was. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, so The Sundowners, it's about Patty, who's Robert Mitchum, and his wife Ida, who's Deborah Kerr, and they have a tween son. Sean, who's uh, Michael Anderson Jr., 
uh, and they're always on the move and they're traveling the Australian countryside in search of uh, some short-term uh, sheep herding work. And uh, Paddy loves the roving lifestyle and his loving wife, Ida, has been fine with it up until now. And Sean's getting old enough that he's starting to ask when they're going to have a real home instead of sleeping in tents every single day. And Ida's starting to come around to that being a superior concept. <laughs> and there just so happens to be a white picket fence kind of deal for sale right next to where they set their tent up. But um, unfortunately, Patty is still resistant and immediately takes another job herding sheep to another town a couple days away and talks about like, come on, guys, we're going to love it. Sleeping in tents. It's great. So Sean befriends a nearby Englishman who's named Rupert, who's Peter Ustinov. Uh, and he's a bit of a rover himself with a very love him and leave him attitude about women. God knows how, quite frankly. <laughs> because Peter Ustinov, you know, with a white beard and a beer gut is not really my idea of a prize. But, uh, you know, I guess when you're in the outback, there's not many options. So, um, Well, I felt like his draw to Mrs. Fitch, who shows up, uh, is that she actually likes him back, and he probably hasn't had too much success with the, with the ladies up until this point, and that's why she she seems like a real prize to him. Well, that first lady was inviting him to tea, and he was running far away, and I don't know why he was being so picky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they, they end up hiring him. He's kind of a haughty Englishman type in, in Australia, so of course he thinks he's superior to everyone, and then teaming up with this Irish family, there's a little bit of uh, friction in general. But uh, as they're uh, herding sheep through the countryside, there ends up being um, a brush fire along the way, which thankfully no one dies. In, in general, nothing dramatic happens in this movie. <laughs> Everything is really like even killed and calm. But um, yeah, they, they get out and they, they've built now a friendship, you know, having dealt with some drama, so that's their camaraderie. And then after they get to the town, uh, Ida then really puts her foot down, and she, she becomes overwhelmed with emotion at the thought of leaving again, and she convinces Patty to just take a job in town and try it out for, like, uh, a couple months. And he agrees because he loves his wife, and uh, they settle uh, in pretty nicely at a farm where everyone's shearing sheep, and they all get drunk, and uh, that's about all they do. Uh, they wrote Patty into a sheep shearing contest, which uh, ends up keeping him staying longer than he would have wanted, but he's having such a good time, so all's well. Uh, he starts to take up gambling, and he ends up winning a racehorse. And uh, then uh, his son's the perfect size to be a jockey, and they start winning races, and they end up uh, with a pretty good nest egg. And so they decide, Ida decides, okay, this is it. We can finally buy this house. But Patty, of course, uh, freaks out. Uh, at the concept of, of buying a house and settling down. And so he ends up drinking and gambling away all of the money that Ida was going to use as a down payment. And then, of course, he feels really horrible afterwards when he sees how much it, it affects his, his wife and kid, and they're really upset. And he says he'll sell the racehorse, but that's also their only form of income other than traveling. So in the end, Ida accepts his remorse, and they both agree that one day they'll save up enough money. <laughs> the end you win some you lose some yeah that seems to be the the arc of this movie although there is a there, there's a sense of fate to it too that's kind of interesting not very interesting nothing in this movie is very interesting but it's you know kind of a relaxing movie to watch but there there is this idea of fate you know the the, the big horse race that they at the end that that they almost win uh, all their money back from is 
is then, you know, turns out to be, to be kind of a fixed race and, and they end up losing instead. And, and I don't know, even the sheep shearing contest is, uh, you know, we, we think that Robert Mitchum has a good chance to win, but they, you know, the, the, the opposing farm is thrown in this ringer that you think, oh, who's this old guy? But it turns out that he's like champion sheep shearer of the world. And, you know, between all these fixed contests and just chances of luck that these drovers are doomed to always be drovers. But I guess what they've learned over the course of this movie is that, you know, maybe sometime, you know, they've, they've, they've gotten close once to settling down. So maybe the next time it'll take. I really like the low stakes in this movie. <laughs> it's actually really refreshing. I mean, especially, I mean, coming off of the two movies we just discussed, it's, it's just refreshing to have movies that are just about people doing normal things and having just normal drama. <laughs> like, I, I liked that, it, I mean, the whole movie is kind of aimless. Like, the, there's really the three arcs is, uh, you know, meeting Peter Ustinov, sheep shearing and then this sort of gambling and that's it but that but then it's like it's all shot on location in australia so it's really beautiful to look at uh you know as far as pastoral landscapes go there's a lot of good animals you have like a kookaburra and like a dingo and a <laughs> some kangaroo a lot of sheep it's a little too ethnographic in a way. Like there's a little, you know, right away it, it comes in with the like Sheila this and cup of that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, isn't it? Aren't, aren't Australians cute? It's definitely precious. Just so many scenes, you know, where the, where the two the two trucks full of sheep shearers nearly run into each other and they jump out and have a fight with each other. It's like, oh, we're, we'll sh this is what Australia is <laughs> like. It's like a, a tourist film of Australia, which is fun. It's fine. You know, it's not my kind of movie, but it, when I, you know, when I was previewing this movie last night to just sort of remind me of uh, how the plot went, you know, I was fast forwarding through some scenes, and I, I'll bet if I watch this again, I would, I would have more fondness for it. It's, it's sort of a, a movie to, to just sort of live in for a while, and I think that the Robert Mitchum and Deborah Carr have great chemistry. I love the two of them together. Yeah, so like that actually made the whole movie for me. I think without that, this really is, it's like, as you said, it's, it's a bunch of uh, Australian stereotypes, aimless plot. But yeah, their marriage is wonderful. It's like one of the few on-screen marriages that seem respectful. <laughs> Never mind that this is one of the few movies where the woman slaps her husband out of frustration and he does not slap her back. <laughs> yeah that was interesting <laughs> and also i mean like he kind of deserved it you know she said hey i need you to do this one thing and not that i'm in, into slapping people but she says that this is the you know i needed you to get your shit together and get this one thing done and he of course goes off and gets drunk instead so but yeah their their uh their marriage was really believable and charming and and uh i like that this was a, a supportive marriage even though they're all kind of catering to the the father's pathological need to keep moving, they seem to strike a, a realistic balance. And there's usually usually someone who has something that people have to cater to. But uh, I also liked how, how witty she was. She did have a lot of good comebacks. I can't think of any specific ones, but she just, you know, she's feisty without being a caricature. And you're just a strong frontier woman. And she could hold her own with just about anybody. Yeah, so, so I think between those, really, and, and the fact that there's there's no blue screen, that there's real animals, that there's, there's real crowd shots, uh, that, that stuff is just, it's, it's nice. 
<laughs> this whole movie is nice. It's just the definition of pleasant. It's a it's the type of movie that you like catch on non cable television and end up watching for two and a half hours or however long this was. <laughs> it's a little too sanitized. It's definitely not a true slice of life, but it felt plausible. Yeah. I mean, I get, it's based on a novel, I guess, probably a real episodic novel, and it shows a few good scenes from it and made a movie out of it. And that's what, that's what it feels like, just kind of picaresque. But your choice, actually, there's a lot of similarities between Sundowners and your choice, Brush Fires being one of them. Yeah, you know, between uh, rape and, uh, and, and forest fires. <laughs> it describes most of, the, most of the movies we selected for this week. Um, yeah, I, I chose Letter Never Sent. Directed by Mikhail Kalatasov, and I think equally of note, shot by Sergei Urosevsky, whose cinematography in this movie is unreal. The two of them actually did three movies together that get talked about a lot. First was The, the Cranes Are Flying from 1957. Which is awesome. And then after this, in 1964, they did I Am Cuba, which is really just the most unbelievable camera work you will ever see in a movie. I mean, this this movie's great, but I Am Cuba just really blew me away. Have, have you seen I Am Cuba? No, and I now having, it's so funny, I you know, it's like Cranes Are Flying, I saw ages ago, actually because my, my mother recommended it to me, and I loved it, and it was, it but I it happened, I think, early enough in my movie watching that I, I didn't have that same instinct to then find everything else that this guy had done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I just sort of, I, I, rem- I think of it, that movie often, but I didn't ever think to watch other movies. And now you've, you've opened Pandora's box. <laughs> well, yeah, I chose Letter Never Sent because it's, um, you know, I like the other two movies so much. And, and this was sort of, it's lesser known than the other two, but coming right in the middle and stylistically kind of a transitional, kind of a nice halfway point between the two movies. Um, I've just, I felt like... You know, I've, I've got to see it at some point, but, you know, Soviet director Mikhail Kalatasov is not, you know, as far as pre-Tarkovsky Soviet directors go, I guess he's one of the more respected, but he's not often talked about as one of these great world auteurs, so I never felt like I had to, you know, just eat up everything he ever did. Um, so I guess that's why I was putting this movie off and sort of using this episode is an excuse to finally see it and uh, and I'm awfully glad I did because it's a great movie uh, so th- it's a it's a movie about four geologists or I guess three geologists and a guide who traveled to the taiga region of uh, of Siberia to look for diamonds for the glory of the of the Soviet Union they want to find uh, this this vein of, of diamonds that they assume should be there because geologically it's similar to areas in Africa where, where diamonds are found. Um, so this is you know, maybe the third trip out to this, uh, this area to look for these diamonds. Uh, you know, different, different crews of geologists have gone and not found anything. And, but this crew is dead set on being the ones to, to finally find these diamonds here. 
So it's three men and, and a woman. One of the geologists is Tatiana Samilova. I was delighted to see her in this. She's the, the star. She's heartbreaking, and, and cranes are flying, and I didn't realize she was in this too. And the movie opens up with these four people being dropped off in the middle of the wilderness, and it's, it's a helicopter shot, so you see them from a great distance, and, and you, know, you watch them traveling into the woods, and you don't realize at first that one of them is a woman. could be a young man. It's, you, know, you don't see their faces too clearly, and then all of a sudden you realize that Oh wow! This is that girl from Cranes Are Flying. So that yeah. was uh, that was that was pretty exciting. So I mean, I really love the first half of this movie where it's them just searching for these diamonds, and you've got all sorts of like silent Soviet-style montages of of them using pickaxes to dig up earth, and it's uh, you know there's this there's this fierce drive to find these diamonds, and and it's so expressionistically done there's you know a lot of these scenes to to show the fiery passion of these geologists or it's sort of uh, there's this double exposure and you see these flames in front of you know overlaid with the shots of them hunting for these diamonds and it sort of represents both the passion of their hunt and also the the, the title of the movie letter never sent it refers to the uh, the one geologist who's been on this trip a few times Sabine and and this letter that he wrote to his wife and meant to give it to the helicopter operator to, to, to give to her while he's away, but he never, he forgot to, to send the letter. So uh, that's what the title is referring to. But you also get this, this overlaid fire in the, in the movie that sort of represents his feelings for his wife and his desire to get back to her. And then you get actual fire. Yeah, <laughs> which all leads up to an actual forest fire uh, where the the movie turns into a uh, survivalist movie. And, you know, it's still beautiful with unreal camera work, a lot of amazing handheld stuff through the forest and just these unbelievable landscapes. But it's, um, I'm not a big fan of the survivalist genre, so it becomes not my kind of movie, I guess, in the second half. You know, I, w- I wanted to see more interaction between the these four characters. I mean, there's a bit of a love triangle. I mean, one of the the guide falls in love with the with the female geologist, but it's all you know. He, he plays it really close to his chest. They find a letter that he was considering giving her, expressing his love for her, and the, and the two of them have a, an encounter in a ditch where you think it may lead to a sexual assault, and fortunately, it does not. It just leads to them actually finding the diamonds. But I loved all that stuff. I I, I wish the whole movie was was that, but then it turns into the. You know, man versus nature, and I I guess you liked all that stuff, though. Yes, but I think I liked it because it's all symbolic. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think I've ever seen... I mean, number one, I don't think I've ever seen a movie as breathtakingly gorgeous as this movie. This this is just outstanding. And, And besides the fact that every single scene is you know done interestingly there's no there's like not like a moment of b-roll that you know <laughs> like everything is just so thought out and and like eye-catching and, and amazing it's 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 almost exhausting there's all of these wonderful long takes just so many just beautiful shots of of the wilderness and i don't know how they did so much of this they're, the scenes with where they they basically fall asleep and they wake up and they're in a forest fire they're, uh, you know, surrounded by burning um, trees and things falling. And I, I, it looks real. 
Yeah. I don't know if they lit a, like a forest on fire and then had to then weave, not, number one, four actors in and out of actual danger. Because, it, it, you know, even though the stuff, is, it, even though it's smoldering, it, that doesn't mean that these trees won't fall and kill you like they do to one character. But uh, the cameraman, <laughs> the whole crew now has to run in and out because there's no movement in this movie where the camera's not weaving in and out of trees and moving and, and uh, running with the characters just straight up uh, on, on the ground, handheld style. So it was just, it's fascinating. I, I would love to know more about how this was even done, how many takes they had to get this done. You know, was this just like, all right, we're lighting it on fire. Everyone go. We have one chance. Yeah, I got real environmentalist pangs from both this movie and the last one, thinking about how they must have actually set these forests on fire to shoot yeah. these movies. <laughs> like they literally had to. I mean, there was no other way. It's not nearly as harrowing in The Sundowners, though. Like, it, it, you can see how they kind of faked it a bit in that one. That seems controlled. There was way more smoke. This one is full-on not good. <laughs> but all of this, though, is it, to me, it's like the pinnacle of, of what makes Russian cinema great. You have this gorgeous uh, natural settings, the, the innovative and awe-inspiring camera work that is in, absolutely impressive. Like, you, will now, you, don't, you don't see this today. We even have technology, we have steady cams, we have, you know, drones, and we still are not coming up with things that are as beautiful as this movie, in my opinion. Well, I think The Revenant was trying to do a lot of what this movie was trying to do and not succeeding. Yes, I thought about The Revenant. Kalatasov obviously had a huge influence on Tarkovsky. I, I used to think that Ivan's childhood was like the most beautiful Russian movie. And then I'm realizing like, no, it's 100% letter never sent. And this has an obvious uh, influence on Ivan's childhood and all of his filmmaking. Um, but yeah, I mean, so then there you have these close-ups on uh, faces and expressions in order to do all the heavy lifting of building characters and, and emotion, which I thought was super effective. This movie made me almost cry multiple times. <laughs> I understood these characters. I got who they were. I understood the dynamic really quickly, which is funny because on Letterboxd, for what it's worth, people seem to, what they seem to not like about this movie is that they thought that the characters didn't click with them. But I didn't need much more than what the movie gave me. I, I don't know, like it worked for me completely. My trouble was I, I couldn't tell Sabina and Sergei apart for a while. They're both fair-haired, bearded guys. It took me a little while to distinguish them because a lot of the character work is just visual and, and shown through their actions. Yeah, there's not much dialogue. I mean, there's, there's narration. But yeah, and then I, so then, you know, all the stylized movement. I love all of that stuff. But then there is, uh, and I think what makes this truly great was there's that nihilistic philosophical grappling of man versus nature. And also to, to have this through the, a Soviet lens where there is no God is fascinating and wonderful. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And then um, I think there's also a bunch of real politically subversive messages that are, are buried within this. That there, there's so many scenes where, um, I mean, number one, the reason why all of these people are on this expedition is to, to further the Soviet diamond trade. They keep talking about like, we're going to, oh, once we find diamonds here, 
then we can, well, they'll build a, an illustrious city. It'll be Diamond City. And yeah, the, uh, the, the dedication at the beginning, it's, it's dedicated to the, the Soviets who risked their lives for the glory of the, of the Soviet state. So, and that, that's the political message of this movie, that everything that these people are risking their lives for is, is for the greater good. There's no personal glory here. Which the movie actively subverts, which is why I love this. Because they sit there and, they, and there's so many scenes where the characters, even when they're dying, remember, they're like everyone, like one of them's already dead. They, they all know that they're probably going to die. Um, the, there's helicopters searching for their party. They managed to radio in at the last minute that they found a diamond. And then this fire happens and say they lose all contact and they're out in the middle of the wilderness in Siberia. You know, now they're, they're just trying to, to find their way through the woods to get to a point where a helicopter can pick them up. Meanwhile, everyone's dying. You know, they go through um, its earth initially searching for diamonds, and then it turns into fire. Then it turns into rain, water, which then turns into ice. So they go through literally every single element, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to battle their way out to, to get picked up and, and to be returned home. And all the while they're telling each other, like, think about the diamond city and think about your oath that you gave to... Um, the Soviet cause and think about, you know, just how, how we're, like, what we're doing, even if we don't make it is, is so worth it, you know, yelling yes to the heavens while, while nature literally throws everything <laughs> at them to kill them. And it felt to me, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a total indictment of Soviet policy, you know, that, that it's, it makes everything they're saying so hollow and so useless, especially in the face of nature <laughs> which, you know, could be interpreted as, as the face of God, right? It's, you know, everything that they're saying, even when Sabinan's dying, he's like on a, a literally an, a raft made of ice floating through water. He's the last one alive. And uh, he has this vision of his wife, which is really heartbreaking. And she's telling him, well, look at the Diamond City. Look at what we, you've, you've built. You know, she is basically, it's his own conscious uh, making him feel better about uh you know dying and and, and everyone <laughs> everyone dying <laughs> and uh you know and he has these visions of of an industrial uh factory being built on the riverbanks here and it's just like it's so hollow and and it's very obvious you know that as he sits here and and, and dies in front of you as you see him you can't help but feel like for for what and that's that sort of two-faced filmmaking that you see a lot of with Soviet filmmaking because you had people that wanted to say something else, but they couldn't get past censors. And uh, I was watching this, and I, and I picked up on all of this, and then I wanted to find proof <laughs> that I was, I was correct in my interpretation. And I found a really interesting article on Senses of Cinema, which was written by uh, Brad Weissman, kind of kind of confer like at least he he agrees with me <laughs> um but saying that uh kalatazov had made a movie uh back in the 30s about an inept soldier and uh apparently it displeased the authorities and uh so much that he was banned for seven years from uh, any creative responsibility so hmm. you know he kind of after that seven year Ban when he came back, I think that he had to do so in true believer mode, as as uh, Weissman right. calls it, and so he you kind of learn how to game the system. So you learn how to start a movie with we dedicate this to <laughs> those brave <laughs> young men, you know, 
And then, and then, you know, just basically make a movie about how, how nature is crushing the Soviet accomplishments. Well, first of all, I'm surprised that you, uh, you enjoyed so much cynicism. I, I feel like that would turn you off, but, uh, but bravo. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is, I, I bought it. I bought the, the propaganda, and maybe it's because I have seen I Am Cuba, which is nothing but propaganda. You know, the stories and that come secondary. It's all just about the, the proletariat, the workers, uh, you know, succeeding and getting ahead and... and uh, so I, maybe that's why this movie didn't quite click for me is because I saw the hollowness and held that against the movie and wasn't praising Kalatazov for sticking that in there and being subversive. But that's the beauty of it is that like it very easily could just be propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what I like. I mean, this was a, a five-star movie for me because it, it's just what I'm looking for in, in Russian cinema pretty specifically. So whether or not... This actually was as subversive as I felt it was. The fact that there was room for interpretation, I think, is at bare minimum on purpose. Okay, that's fair. So now it's time for the best part of the show, where we talk <laughs> about the movies we hated. So why don't you uh, talk about your selection for a movie from 1960 that you hated more than any other? So here's some, some backstory to my, my hate choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I spent all summer watching every single Martin and Lewis movie. <laughs> and, uh, don't... You really are a masochist when it comes to movie watching. <laughs> so you, you think I'm not cynical, but look what I did to myself. Um, but I've since moved on uh, to just watching their uh, solo efforts because, again, I maybe hate myself. No, uh, actually, um, I was watching a lot of Dean Martin movies. Because he's more my speed in general, and I find him to be kind of fascinating, and his choices of films are really fascinating, and uh, mostly because they're not very flattering to him, which I find really interesting. But anyhow, we're not talking about him, because curiosity got the best of me, and I figured I'm going to give Jerry a chance. And uh, this was, so the, I, I chose this as my first uh, foray into Jerry's solo movies, and I'll be up front. Uh, I'm not the biggest Jerry Lewis fan. Well, within Martin and Lewis, and I don't think you are either. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Although, well, he's growing on me, but we'll get into that. Well, he sort of grew on me after I, you know, Stockholm Syndrome myself with every Martin and Lewis <laughs> uh, movie. And then I've watched a, more of their television show than I want to admit. And um, he, he has made me, he absolutely has made me laugh in more ways than I ever expected. But uh, a huge part of that for me and my sense of humor is having Dean there to reel him in or to, to keep him level or for Jerry to kind of bounce off of. So yeah. I, when I started the solo stuff, uh, you know, I was worried it was going to be a bit too much Jerry for me, <laughs> uh, which uh, it is, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of Jerry. <laughs> uh, so I started with Cinderfella strictly because the name is legitimately brilliant. And I also, in general, I like uh, gender-bending movies that swap out 
uh, female for male in particular, because it's typically, it, it's interesting. You, you usually will find things that strangely work or are glaringly out of place. And uh, it, it's intriguing. It kind of helps elevate the original story even when you realize that, oh no, this is very much hinge, like hinged on uh, our concepts of gender and place and all of that. Anyhow, but all of that I think is a little bit even... Well, actually, Cinderella totally engages in some gender politics. So uh, this movie, to, to sum it up, is about a young man named Fella, who is Jerry Lewis, uh, whose rich father died and then left the entire estate to the wicked stepmother and the two sons, who are named Maximilian and Rupert, but they kind of look like the Trump brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so in my mind, they're Don Jr. and Eric. Uh, and this is it's tip. This is your typical Cinderella story. Fellows shoved in the washroom, and uh, he's the butler for the two brothers and the stepmother. I think it's uh, interesting asterisk to point out that the stepmother was not changed. She's still a mother, which because this movie hates mm -hmm. women. But we're going to get to that. <laughs> and <laughs> um, he goes along uh, willingly with this, not mostly because he's like a sweet, nice guy. And he, at the same time, has regular dreams that his father is trying to tell him where the hidden fortune is, which the step family is desperate to get their hands on because I guess they, they have this nice house and they have a, a slave, <laughs> but uh, they don't have any money. So, yeah, so they're nice to him when they, he sleepwalks and they want to follow to, to see if he finds the treasure and it never gets anywhere because he is Jerry Lewis, so he kind of walks in a circle. It's just a setup for another gag. yeah. Pretty much any any piece of plot is just a setup for a gag, and and the never really follows through story wise. Yeah, and then he has fella has this whole concept in theory about persons and people, and how they're not one and the same. Like a persons is a are people who have made it and are rich and famous, so they're not people anymore. And a people is someone who has yet to become an important person. So he sings a couple songs about that. And one day, uh, his fairy godfather, who's played by a uh, Disney fave, Ed Wynn, uh, who is, if you, like, if you don't recognize the name, you'd 100% recognize, number one, his face and the, the sound of his voice. He's the, like, ooh, kind of guy <laughs> in every Disney thing. He loves to laugh in Mary Poppins. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, next comes Princess Charmang, I think, is what they pretend to call her, Princess Charming, <laughs> who is real-life Disney princess because she's beautiful, Anna Maria Albergetti. Yeah, so the stepmother wants to throw a ball to get Eric and Don Jr. wedded off so they have money in the future. And fella is not allowed and, and all of that. And then his fairy godfather shows up and, and tells him that he's a person. He goes on this rant about how the Cinderella tale, the original Cinderella tale, very meta, uh, has given women too much power. <laughs> and that he, he says, number one, that he was the original, he was the fairy godfather that helped the real Cinderella. But all those darn female reporters, question mark, uh, attributed his magic to a woman. And then he goes off on how women always want credit for everything, and the original Cinderella stories ruin things for men because women expect too much from their husbands. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was so tuned out at that point. I mean, the the movie just grinds to a halt when the when the fairy godfather explains all this, all these, the the whole reason for this movie. That I just, I don't know. I, I I went somewhere else in my head while that was going on. Full disclosure: When I watched this movie um, a couple months ago, I literally fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually rewatched it this morning, which is why I have this degree of detail. I wrote it down because I was like, oh, my God. Like, I couldn't even believe. Like, I had a, I had glimpsed this uh, in and out of, of dozing off at this point in the movie, but it is really bad. Like, he, he, um, he straight up says that women need to be put back in their place, and that's why they chose Fella, because he's the everyman. He's not too attractive. He's not very smart. The the Godfather says that like the man in charge. Cho- this is all like a man's like men's rights conspiracy. <laughs> that they chose Fella, so this is his destiny as a person is to put women in their place and and marry Princess Charming. Uh, so anyhow, Fella shows up at the ball, transformed into a slightly more dashing uh, Jerry Lewis, which, which has like a streak of distinguished gray hair. Is really the only change. <laughs> He's very buddy love. It's, yes, it's like a preview for uh, for the nutty professor when he shows up, you know, in his ball suit. Yeah, this he definitely he definitely does a buddy love swagger as he walks in. There's this huge staircase that he he walks down and does a jazz dance to uh, to actual Count Basie and his orchestra. <laughs> Or, and it's great. Yeah, it's really great. I watched it again. It's so good. His entrance to the ball. That the the moments of jazz dancing are are brilliant in this actually, uh, which he does a couple of times. And uh, yeah, he dazzles Princess Charming, and he loses his shoe as he runs up the staircase. Which uh, sidebar that shot of him running up the staircase. By the time he got to the top of the staircase after, and he sprints like it's only a couple of seconds, and he's running up this huge, huge staircase. He gets to the top. And right when he goes off camera, apparently he collapsed because he had a heart attack. <laughs> and then he had to, and it halted shooting for, for a couple of weeks because he was in the, in the hospital. And I don't think this is the first time he had a heart attack. But yeah, then the princess shows up and she begs him, begs him to marry her. Like she is like crying, ripping her clothing off, screaming like, no, you have to marry me, which is all at once the, like the most unrealistic. <laughs> Oh, unrealistic. Like, seen, like, not just because she's super beautiful and he looks like crap in this movie. Maybe, like, and I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, I don't think Jerry Lewis is inherently unattractive. And he definitely was, actually, had hordes of screaming women chasing after him. So, uh, <laughs> so. He just makes too many stupid faces. How could, how could anybody find him appealing, at least in that way? Uh, yeah, I don't get it. But I guess I, I wondered, actually, I realized this time around, maybe it's because his, his face is cindered up, but he just looks like ashen. He looks sick. I was like, yeah, that's why you had, like, a heart attack. <laughs> like, you look terrible. Actually, the, the dance he does at the ball is pretty impressive. He's got good moves. I could see falling for him a little bit there. <laughs> In that nice red suit. Yeah. But um, this movie, well, what did you think of this movie? I just, I did not care about the plot at all. It was just something to hang a bunch of gags on. And I thought there were a lot of really good gags. There are some amazing set pieces. He's got a whole breakfast preparation scene where he's squeezing oranges and and getting the newspaper. And it's all just like perfectly choreographed. And it's just a 
brilliant set piece. You know, feels very cartoony. This this movie was directed by Frank Tashlin, who of right. course got a start in cartoons. And there's just so many really great cartoony moments in this. Great, you know, great sight gags. And Jerry is an incredible physical actor. He knows how to use his body. And as you know, once you can get past the stupid faces, it's it's possible to 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 watch him and laugh. You know, there are just as many grown worthy gags a lot of times or he you know the the gags just don't work at all there's a scene where he's pulling off a sweater after a long day on the polo field or something and it's you know just goes on and on and it's not funny at all and you know there are just as many of those as there are brilliant gags probably a lot fewer brilliant gags actually but there's still there's enough there for me to laugh quite a bit i i had a good time watching it and i was able to tune out all the stupidity really but you watched it with a friend you said which i think is probably the key yeah it's it's true it's it's nice when you have a a way to distract yourself you just tune in and you see something funny is about to happen and either ends up being funny or it doesn't then you tune back out again yeah you have the ability to sort of to, to both laugh with and laugh at, I think, when you have someone there with you. Otherwise, what happens is you fall asleep like I did. All right, I don't hate this movie, but I was definitely disappointed. Like, there was so much... I mean, there was no transformation scene. Well, you get the transformation back, which is... Which was okay. Which feels really out of place, because there's no explanation. Like, all of a sudden, he's riding a bike with a with a fish in the basket. Right. And, uh, and, of course, I was reminded of the feminist saying... Oh, 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 woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And, uh, and, I, and I actually looked it up and saw that this movie predated that saying. So, uh, so there, there's some gender politics for you. Um, but, but yeah, I guess instead of a pumpkin and a mice, he, he has his bike and, and a fish transformed into his carriage and chauffeur. And, Which would have been so much fun to show more of. Like, I just don't understand. I mean, I don't know why you would tell the story of Cinderella and, and not include more magic. You know, there's really nothing else in this story but that, you know... Because it grinds to a halt whenever Edwin shows up. I think they probably had more and they just <laughs> they cut, cut, cut it out because it sucks. Fun fact, they shot the whole movie and Paramount wanted to release it in the summer. And Jerry Lewis was uh, completely against it. He said this is a, this is a holiday movie. <laughs> that this needs to be released in the winter. And they said, well, we need something in the summer then. And so what Jerry did was that he was doing a show, I guess, in Miami Beach in a hotel. And he came up with the concept of let's just shoot a whole bunch of gags. Like, it's a really cool hotel. Let's shoot a bunch of gags in here. And then, uh, you know, have that as the first movie. And then it'll lead up to, to Cinderfella, our, our opus <laughs> for the year of 1960. And so he shot The Bellboy which is also came out in 1960, which is, um, uh, it is, it's just a string of gags. He doesn't even speak. It's very Chaplin. It's just him, uh, mm-hmm. you know, running around a hotel. And, and I actually, have, I've only seen clips of it. I haven't watched it yet. So I've seen that one. Yeah. I think in general, it's much more highly regarded than Cinderfella. Yes. It was a huge smash hit and it's, and it did so well. And then when Cinderfella came out, it kind of flopped. <laughs> So it's kind of interesting that, you know, that this movie, you know, what it does well, I think he, Jerry Lewis kind of got that lesson because of the next movies that he comes out with are far more like the bellboy uh, than they are like this, which is uh, probably a good thing. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to Jerry and he'll have his comeuppance. We're going to be huge Jerry Lewis fans by the, <laughs> by the end of this series. So 
now I get to talk about the movie that I selected as as the movie I hated most from 1960. And, I mean, I picked Bergman's Virgin Spring. I'm actually a, a big Ingmar Bergman fan, and he was a huge part of me getting obsessed with movies. I and mean, when I finally you know, discovered Bergman, I, I just I, I realized what movies could do. They're philosophical and challenging, and and you know, in the, in the midst of watching, you know, everything I could get my hands on of Bergman's, I watched The Virgin Spring, and this was you know maybe. 25 years ago, and um, and I hated it, you know, in, in comparison with the rest of the Bergman I'd seen, I just thought it was terrible, it was so simple and ugly, it's uh, it's based on a, on a 13th century ballad, and it's about a uh, girl, you know, daughter of a, of a landowner, is, um, is traveling across the country to bring candles to church, and with her is their pregnant maid who's jealous of the of this innocent young girl and and she um, stops to share her lunch with with three poor shepherds and they end up raping her and killing her and the rest of the movie is uh you know these shepherds end up the next evening taking shelter with the the family of the girl that they've just raped and killed uh, you know unbeknownst to them and and when the father finds out who he's got in his house he proceeds to murder them one by one so it's just Really nasty, unpleasant movie. It was remade in the '70s as The Last House on the Left, which ah. I, I've I've not seen. But I guess it's probably not as nasty and unpleasant as that. But for a movie made in 1960, the rape is very graphic, and the and the murders are are awful. When one one of the shepherds is a is a young boy who is uh, pretty innocent himself in the scheme of things, and and the father, played by Max von Sydow, kills the boy as well. And so part of his remorse is that he also killed the boy. But I wanted to, when I first saw this movie, I just wanted to forget I ever saw it and couldn't understand why it's considered one of Bergman's best and most important movies. Um, so that that was the movie I selected as, as my hate for 1960. And, uh, and so I rewatched it, and I ended up not hating it quite as much as I originally did. It's... It's a beautiful looking movie. The medieval details are unbelievable. Really, like this world that it's set in is very authentic feeling. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting paganism versus Christianity stuff that's going on in it. I mean, it's it's still an ugly, unpleasant movie, really brutal, but it's partially redeemed by a lot of beautiful cinematography. Uh, Sven Nykvist was... I guess he'd done one or two other movies with Bergman before, but starting with The Virgin Spring, he, he kind of became Bergman's exclusive cinematographer. And, and this is, there, there's so many images in this movie that are unforgettable. And I, I think that, you know, maybe it's, it's so fondly remembered because it, it's so brutal and, and, and memorable and simple. So, you know, somebody who is new to foreign cinema maybe would, would go into this and, and feel like they've seen a movie, like, you know, get hit pretty hard with it and realize, oh, actually, you know, some of these subtitled movies can be good or or something. It's funny because I I actually 
I feel like Bergman is the worst place to start for trying to get someone into foreign films because this is like to me what everyone hates about foreign films. <laughs> really? <laughs> like that it, it's like beautiful and brutal and simple and so I kind of I kind of hated this I, and I might be but I'm on the fence <laughs> because I found this to be it, basically this is like the definition to me of a difficult movie. And not because it's so, it's definitely, it's not complex, but it is, it's, it's hard to watch. And it's, it's hard to watch because it's just the, the, you know, like, as you said, it's so, you know, it's, it's as brutal as like, um, like a Jack Chick comic. <laughs> Do you get this? <laughs> I don't know who Jack Chick is. He's like this, like evangelical fundamentalist Christian. And he writes, he, like, there are these little tiny, like, you get handed this on the street or you run into them. Oh, those little comics. Yeah. Those Christian comics. Yeah, okay, yeah. Where, where it's like... Yeah, where it's all fire and brimstone if you, if you do something wrong. Yeah. There was one, and this, it reminds me, <laughs> I'm, like, watching The Virgin Spring, and I'm like, this reminds me of a Jack Chick comic. But there was, <laughs> there was one where it was about how, like, some woman who's coming, she's on an airplane coming back from Africa and she gets seated next to this guy who's like, hi, I'm an ex-felon. Like, <laughs> what's your deal? <laughs> and the woman says that she was building churches in Africa and she works for, you know, the Lord. And, and he says, well, I killed a man in prison, but then I, uh, you know, and I used to burn tires for money, but, uh, you know, then I gave myself up to Jesus Christ. And I said this one very specific prayer and she says, all right, like, and she's not interested. And then the plane crashes and they all die. <laughs> and they're at the pearly gates. And God says, okay, to the felon, well, you said the, the special prayer, so welcome to heaven. And then he turns to the, the, this, the woman, or I think it's a man, maybe a married couple, and says, well, you didn't say our specific prayer, so you're going right to hell. And they get thrown into hell. <laughs> and that's the end of the comic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what this reminded me of because you have this beautiful princess who's from a loving family and she's being spoiled because they say this is her only daughter and we just love her so much and so you know she gets to do things you know so she's a little bit of a brat but like she doesn't do anything bad like she's she's very proud of being a good christian and and dreams about the day when you know she's going to live her wonderful christian life and then she goes she gets sent off with her um, maid, who is jealous and angry and pregnant from an unknown man, and she curses the princess, and then the princess just gets raped and murdered brutally. And, you know, it's just like, it's unfair, which is the point, but it's just like, like, do I need to watch it? Like, do I, like, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I hate stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's about faith you know how, how do we continue to have faith when these awful things happen and, and it's about guilt and remorse and you know it's about things i understand why we're being put through the torture of, of watching these things happen on the screen and bergman is sophisticated enough that it brings up some interesting questions i suppose and the, you know, i was saying about the christianity versus the the paganism i mean the, the curse that the maid places on karen yeah her prayer to odin which I which I thought was interesting, and that and that that whole concept of dueling prayers and who you know the Christian God versus Odin and who gets their prayers answered and who doesn't, you know that it's all kind of happenstance in the end, or or it's so so here's what I did find interesting about this movie 
And this is why I can't fully hate it because even though it's a simplistic movie, number one, it's if, if you're basing this on like something from the 1300s or whatever, like it's it's gonna be. <laughs> but Bergman leaves a whole lot of room for both a very reaffirming Christian interpretation of this, or I thought a fairly atheist interpretation of this whole bitterly depressing tale. Yeah, that's that's Bergman in a nutshell. He's sort of trapped between his Christianity and his atheism, and, and, and all of his movies seem to be trying to negotiate his way between both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, the, that, that scene in the end with, of Max von Sydow, after he's killed everybody, and then they ride to uh, where Heron's body is laying, which I will say also that I appreciated that while the rape scene is incredibly brutal, I appreciate that it was portrayed as brutal. It is not pretty. This, there's multiple beautiful scenes in this movie, and the rape scene is definitely not one of them, and I thought, and I thought that was a smart choice. Yeah. Uh, though when she's dead, she's beautiful, which, you know, it, it's, not, it's not even symbolic. It's just sad. Oh, I mean, I got the biggest lump in my throat. The, the, the most effective shot in the movie, the most, you know, where I, where I really felt the horror is when the, the boy is left alone with the body while the other two shepherds are trying to, uh, to sell her goods and, and get some money. When he's, you know, you, you see him, you know, trying to eat something and having no appetite. And then eventually he looks at the body and there's just a shot of her motionless body sitting, you know, in a, in, you know, in a, in a shallow gully. And it's, it's, it's wrenching. I mean, it really is effective. There's this great scene when he finds the body where it's framed so that there's more negative space than there is him. And it's from behind. So you see his full body standing pretty much in the middle of the shot, just surrounded by, you know, the, the forest around him and the, this clearing in the forest around him. And he's screaming to the heavens, basically. And, and it's, it's just, it's the most nihilistic shot I've seen in ages. Because you, you can feel how empty and alone he is and how, how useless his cries to God are. Even though his response to having this experience where he, he says, God, why is this happening? Uh, and and what, what should I do next? And there's just this profound silence surrounding it. And then it, uh, you know, and then he has yeah. this idea, we'll build a church, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll create something godly from this horrible act and all of that. But, you know, watching it, it just, it, it for me, <laughs> I, I really bought into it being far more, more atheistic and, and, you know, almost like a letter never sent where it just feels like people alone, you're alone in, in this nature and, and, you know, you feel much more close when he then lays next to her dead body and it's this really severe close-up on both of their faces together. It feels more human and it feels like it has actually more substance than when he's speaking to God. You know, in, in, in the end, when, um, when the spring flows out from underneath where, where Karn's dead body was and, uh, and the, the cast of characters who've, sh who've shown up to, to retrieve her body, you know, cleanse themselves in that spring, I... I didn't. I don't find that symbolism particularly rich, and I, I know it has across many religions. It has uh, it has great significance. So I mean, I I really do f feel like Bergman is. You know, there's an idea that we've got to have faith in something in his movies. He just can't figure out what because the universe is so cruel. So I see it less as atheistic as just constantly questioning and trying to make sense of why our lives are so awful. Which, you know, is like a fun <laughs> Friday night movie. 
So that brings us to the end of the movies we're going to talk about from 1960. I don't know, can we? Is there anything we can say that we learned from, from watching all of these movies? It is interesting to, to see how, how watching movies changes as, as you change, as you get older, and how your initial reaction to something is not always your, your final reaction, and whether or not we'll come back in 10 years' time and realize that Cinderfella was actually the best movie out of all of these. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to talk about all of these movies at the same time, if you're you know, living in America in 1960, you probably have seen Cinderfella and the Sundowners and Strangers When We Meet in 1960, but a lot of these foreign movies, they, they took a few years to get over here and you know and then you'd you'd have to live in a big city to even have an opportunity to see it so watching movies this way from a from a particular year it doesn't really duplicate the experience of being a movie watcher at the time at all but it does sort of give you a sense of just the different things that were circulating at the time that I don't I don't know if we can find any universal themes anything that tie all of these movies together but you can you know just certain you know, even even something like film stock that's used, and you know whether it's widescreen or you know anamorphic or or, or just you know standard um, four to three, like just just seeing what stylistically ties these movies together and and where where technology had gotten us at that point, uh, is it's you know, it's worth worth watching movies this way. You also get to see that the foreign films allow married couples to be in the same bed. <laughs> <laughs> Although we're getting pretty close there with, with American movies. I feel like we, we, that wasn't too far off. In 1960, we only had a couple more years, maybe, before people could be in bed together. Well, it, the uh, Sundowners had a kind of saucy sex scene. Yeah, that was pretty lusty, actually. And uh, it was between a, you know, a happily married couple, so I guess that makes it more acceptable in 1960. Which is wild, because you don't see that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the biggest complaint. But anyhow, yeah, I learned a lot, and I'm sure that we will do more of these uh, same structure with, uh, you know, every single year in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I'd, I'd like to do more. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.